Welcome to the Battles in Autumn. The Battles in Autumn is a new spiritual exercise produced by Exodus 90 that will show you how to lead others in the faith. What we do is we open up the book of 1 Maccabees, which narrates the story of the Jewish uprising. God is calling each one of us to lead other men to Him and awaken the battle raging within and around us. Our reflection will unpack how we can lead other men and be active in battle and support one another in this fight. But the most iconic spiritual exercise from Exodus, which is Exodus 90, is a 90-day journey through the book of Exodus. We will start Exodus 90 on January 1st, 2024. That's January 1st, 2024. So go to exodus90.com to find out more. That's exodus90.com to find out more information and to participate in the spiritual exercise of Exodus 90. Warning. The Catholic Man Show contains high levels of manliness. It's simple, really. You either want to grow in virtue and holiness, or you want to be a sissy, whiny baby. If you choose to move forward, grab your whiskey glass, because The Catholic Man Show is starting right now. Welcome to the Catholic Man Show. We're on the Lord's team, the winning side. So raise your glass. I'm Adam Minahan, sitting in a place I did not expect to ever record a Catholic Man Show. I didn't think we'd ever record a Catholic Man Show in Colorado, but I'm pumped we are. Yeah. We're at the Freedom Summit, Exodus 90 Freedom Summit. Uh, we have Dr. Jared Stout and Deacon Michael Halbrook, who's coming back. He's a glutton for punishment. He's been on our show before. <laughs> I could take it. Yeah. <laughs> but it's great to have you guys here. It's been a, a phenomenal weekend uh, filled with um, a, a lot of cheer, a lot of mirth, a lot of friendships, a lot of great talks. Um, it's just been great to hear everybody's Exodus 90 story. Like, yeah. It is so refreshing to hear. It's like, you know, uh, C.S. Lewis said that, uh, the quote, like when you when you meet a friend, it's like, oh no, you too, you know, and like that be that's the beginning of a, a friendship, and it's just it's so great to hear every time we sit down for for lunch or dinner and to hear everybody else's story and be like, oh no way, you had that experience too, yeah, me too, yeah, um, so, so yeah, we're here in, in beautiful Estes Park, Colorado, up we're here in the mountains. I mean, it's just gorgeous. Um, it just they have a we're at the YMCA facility here. I had no idea there were YMCAs like this. It turns out it really is fun to stay at the YMCA. The right one. The right one, yes. <laughs> so Deacon, tell us a little bit about this event. Where, like, What is it and what is it not? Wow. So that's a great question. So the Freedom Summit is not a conference, not a men's conference. The idea is it's just a gathering of men who have made an exodus or are interested in exodus or could be impacted by exodus where we come together uh, and just different exodus men share their stories. There's no VIPs. There's no speakers. There's there's just men that step up and share well, their Juan's own experience. Well, He's kind of a VIP. Juan is a VIP. I'm yeah. sorry, Juan. <laughs> he, I'm sorry. I mean, he literally has a special chair. Okay, can we can we talk about this? Just I for think a we second. have to at least mention just for the a chair. Yeah. So, Juan, did you guys? Did you guys? Oh, by the way, we have an audience. Say hello, everybody. So, yeah. yeah, hello. Did you guys notice Juan's chair? In, did you see in it Freedom behind Hall, you in the auditorium? Yeah. A little bit ridiculous. So they they said like, "Hey, can we bring Juan? We needed some extra help." And, and we we're like, "Yeah." And unbeknownst to us, Juan goes, "Yes." Oh no, I'm sorry. No, he said, "Yes." Yes. No. He said, "Yes." Yes. As long as you guys get me a director's chair. And we had no idea he did that. And we show up, 
And me, and the D. when you go back into the hall, look up Deacon behind Albrook the soundboard. Like, there's a director's well, chair. Here's your, your director's chair, chair. <laughs> and, we're, and we're shipping it home to you. So, <laughs> and Juan, Juan was pretty. Juan was kidding, and uh, but all the same, here and it he's, is. He's yeah. super pumped. He's and he has been sitting in it the entire time. Yeah, just mm-hmm. so you guys know. So sorry, oh, happy. No, it's yeah. okay. So I mean, we're excited. There's you know a couple hundred men from seven countries that have you know Exodus men here this week. Uh, we are really looking forward to doing this again. This has been, I mean, the Lord has done something much more amazing than we even imagined as we set out on this and just looking out and, and meeting and seeing, and everybody's heads are shaking. Like, yeah, we just, we want everybody to bring two or three other men next year and uh, we're ready to grow this. So thank yeah. you. Yeah. So I have to tell, I have to tell you, Deacon, Dr. Stout, and every, all of you guys who are involved, this is one of the best events I've ever been to. I mean, it's just, it's just been incredible. You guys think so? Yeah. Yeah. I, what, what I have really appreciated about the weekend is the balance between um, a, a talk or, you know, and a very reflective, like very on point, practical, something that like really applies to me, talk, and then followed up by adoration, mm-hmm. prayer. So it, it's like the whole human formation thing that's going on. It's not just here's, here's four good, four speakers, high quality speakers, right. mm-hmm. now go home. Um, it, it's just it's so well balanced, That's and then really fraternal like activities. It. The yes. afternoons are just going out in the mountains together, having fun, and right. then another another talk in the evening. Yeah. Yep. So anyway, well done. That's where we are. It's an awesome yes. team. We're here, and, and awesome so team. we're drinking Jameson Triple. Let's see, it's triple, uh, triple, triple, uh, distilled, uh, triple distilled, triple cask. It's an Irish whiskey, as as most know. Now, t- uh. Father Columba? Was it Father Columba? No, no, no. So Patrick O'Neill, oh, okay. who is the man who took the one millionth cold shower, brought this with him from Exodus, or from Ireland. He is our guest here this week, uh, and he brought this. So compliments of Patty O'Neill. Only yes. buy it in Ireland. In Ireland. He yeah. wanted to bring something you could only get in Ireland. Which is awesome. Now, now uh, Irish whiskey is, is known to be, as triple distilled, it's known to be very delicious. It's very easy to drink. Mm-hmm. It's not, there's not going to be this harsh burn or anything like that. Right. There's a, 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 a very big Whereas debate. Whereas bourbon and scotch is mostly distilled twice. Correct. Yeah. Uh, and there's a big debate on, uh, you know, who started whiskey, the Irish or the, or the Scottish. The Irish always say they are. The, uh, Scottish always say they did. But the word uh, Irish in Gaelic, or the word whiskey in Gaelic is ishkabaha, which is, means water of life. Hmm. Okay. And, and so it started with ishkabaha and then ishka and then whiskey and then whiskey. And so that's how we get. That, that's where we are now. Now uh, with Irish whiskey, you get an e at the end. You get an e in it. So it's W H I S K E Y. Scott Scottish Scott Scott Scotch will have only you can do it without an e. Yes, <laughs> Scotch will, will not have an e. Um, and so it, that's the battle that they always play. And with the Japanese, they they, they, uh, they it's like all of a sudden the Japanese start distilling fantastic whiskey, and they're like, yeah, we're going without the e. Yeah. So. Which is a bold move. Well, no matter where it began, whether it was Ireland or Scotland, it was monks who did it. Yes, That's correct. For medicinal purposes. That's what they called it the aqua vitae. Same thing, water of life. Uh-huh. The water of life. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. So, what, what's your, so uh, what, was it, what was the guy's name who brought it? Patty O'Neill. Patrick O'Neill. Patrick O'Neill. What an, is that not the most Irish name you've ever heard? Yeah. Patty O'Neill? Like, that's so, amazing. We're on the Lord's team. The, the winning, winning side. side. So, raise your glass. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers, Cheers, gentlemen. Cheers, Cheers to Jesus. Yeah. Wow. So it's, uh, like you said, mm. triple distilled, triple cask. It's sherry, bourbon, 
Malaga, Mal Malaga casks um, for a subtle sweetness and extra drop of smoothness. Yeah, I really like the sherry. It's almost a little orangey. Has a little orange taste, yeah. Don't you think so? Mm -hmm. You guys think so? Nice. Definitely, That's fantastic. Definitely the sweetness. Yeah. Uh, okay, so so uh, Dr. Stout, we, we were, before we were uh, recording, we wanted to talk, we were asking you, like, what should we talk about? And you, you'd mentioned, you pitched an idea about, you know, the virtue of religion. We just got done talking about this, and I think, was it a men's group that we were talking to? Like, one of our men's groups? Yeah. We were talking about how religion is actually a virtue. A lot of men have never heard this, right? They had never heard, like, uh, or even thought, I guess, that, oh, I guess religion is a sub-virtue. Uh, maybe flesh that out for us, Dr. Seward. Tell, tell us, like, how is religion actually a virtue? Well, it is in the catechism, so we're not making this up. Yeah. <laughs> it's also in the Summa. Yes, that's right. And, you know, when we think of religion, we're usually thinking of an, like an organized body of religion, of people, you know, sharing certain practices of both belief, worship, and moral way of living. But Thomas Aquinas said that ultimately it's a perfection of the soul. Are you giving to God what you owe him? And I, I think in our culture, we tend to think that God owes us something, right? You know, is, is God doing the things for us that we need? But we have received everything that we have from him. And so religion says that we need to acknowledge that, that we actually need to pay this debt, not only by worshiping God. In a way, that would almost be too easy, right? Just go to mass on Sunday, pray for an hour, and that's giving God, you know, what you owe him. But that's just the beginning, right? That's a sign that our whole entire life belongs to God. And so the virtue of religion perfects the soul, perfects the moral life by ordering every single action to God as a sacrifice so that everything that you do should be given back to God to thank him and to praise him. So, okay, so... Can you give us a, a, a definition of what justice is? Yeah, justice is giving to another what is owed to him. Okay, and so if that's the case, and you said like religion is giving that to God which we owe to him, but how do we give something to him in which we can't actually give, like we actually don't yeah, have how do, that? How do we give him something? He doesn't, he has everything and doesn't need anything. Well, we can actually give him something of infinite value. And that is, when we go to Mass, we are giving the Father, the Son, back to Him. So religion would always fall short before Christ. But this is actually part of the reason why the Son of God became man. He said, I'm going to come, I'm going to be one of you, and on your behalf, I am going to offer the most perfect sacrifice to the Father, a sacrifice of love, a sacrifice of obedience, and that is going to be myself. And when we go to Mass as members of his body, we are offering him and ourselves along with him to the Father. And so we actually can give God what we owe him in Jesus. You know, that's such an important part. I went to Catholic schools, kindergarten through high school. And it wasn't until I was an adult that I stumbled upon this idea of uh, the fourth cup or, you know, like, what is actually happening in the Mass? I was so mad when I discovered it because it's like, why didn't someone tell me this, you know, like, years ago? This is incredible. Like, because I've always, you know, I grew up, it's like, oh, yeah, the Mass is, like, we're re being uh, represented at the crucifixion. It's like, whatever. Uh, like, doesn't seem like it. Um, 
But then when I learned about what was Christ actually doing at the Last Supper and what he did, how he changed you know, the right and everything, can you talk a little bit about the connection there between the cross and the mass, just because I think it's so awesome? So really, you have to start at the Passover. Right? So a Passover is a meal uh, in which the flesh of the lamb must be consumed. Right? If you're not eating the flesh of the lamb, you're not partaking um, of the actual Passover, of death passing over the house. And when you sacrifice that lamb, you're basically saying, he is dying instead of me. Mm-hmm. And, he, and the lamb is actually giving his flesh to be your life. And so Jesus takes up the Passover and transforms it uh, by using it to establish a new covenant in his blood. Uh, and so it's at the Last Supper He says, if you want to have my life, you must eat my flesh. Here it is. I am the Lamb of God. Um, And you will be saved by my blood. If if my blood is upon you, then death will pass you over. Uh, But it's not simply the fact that he gave his life, right? Because that's, you know, we look at the Passover lamb, the Passover lamb dies. When we look at the cross, this is actually the highest expression of life. What is human life for? And this brings us back to the virtue of religion. Human life is meant to give God glory. Human life is, is actually meant to be a sacrifice. To, to sacrifice something is not simply to destroy it. It's to make it holy. And the cross is the greatest altar upon which Jesus made himself this embodiment of what humanity should be, a sacrifice to the glory of God. And on the cross, he sanctified all of human life and the world. Beautiful. But was that sufficient for you? That was sufficient. Okay, <laughs> good. good. I just want to make sure it's sufficient for you. We can finish. I'm relishing. Here, I need another drink. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so Deacon, let me ask you this because you're you have a different perspective from the mass than than we do in the, uh, as a lady because we're looking up. You're looking back at us. What's some of the things that gives you hope and like gives you like it gets you excited, gives you energy while you're up there? on the altar looking back at the lady. Wow. Um, I don't hope and energy might not be the way that I would describe it. Almost more just, um, fear and humility. Um, (laughs) okay. Yeah. yeah, Kind of the opposite, right? Like, Oh my gosh, I'm closer. Like there's almost like a heightened expectation. (laughs) Right. Right. Um, but just a, an awe of the opportunity to be right there, to be assisting that priest in that way, uh, in, in that, in that sacrifice. Um, but I, I'll tell you the hope, like, for example, at the liturgies here at, at the freedom summit, um, just seeing a couple hundred other men, you know, worshiping in that way, like singing together, being together, praising, you know, praying together, just knowing like there are other men that are desiring to lead their homes, their families, their communities, like in this way, right. That, that that lead, that points towards what we owe to God, um, that that's giving me hope. So, but but mass like like we have to go out like it, like the last part of mass is yeah you probably go actually forth. say go forth right, right? Mm-hmm. so how, like what does that look like because we're talking about religion we're talking about you know eating and drinking and everything else like so what what does that actually look like what does that tangibly look like I think Deacon, Deacon I get a chance to you're also a great Twitter follower. 
or X follow. Like that sounds weird, yeah, right? It's X still follower. It's sort of like Twitter. Facebook. Like give me meta. Give me a whenever break. I yeah. have a little like, spare time. Right. Yeah. yeah. It, it, mm-hmm. So, but it, it's great to see how you you incorporate uh, your faith outside of just in the church when you take it mm-hmm. out into your domestic church. Mm-hmm. So, what does that look like for you? Like, what is that? Like, how, how does your your the, the mass affect the rest of your week? Well, it actually. Uh, Maybe the best way to describe it is to try to not put a wall there, right? Like the rest of the week should actually look a little bit like the mass, right? It should look like the things that I heard in the scripture that week, actually I do. The sacrifice that I took part in at the altar and that I received, I actually give, right? Like maybe there isn't a difference, right? Maybe that actually becomes the pattern for every single thing that I do. And gosh, like, yes, I fall short, right? Like there are times I get short with one of my kids, there are times that like I, I walk away from a conference call and I'm like, oh my gosh, this is so hard, right? And yet those are the moments that I think it's actually important to turn back to that recollection of the mass and realize like, no way, like the living out of that is actually how this should look, right? And maybe these difficulties are actually just part of that journey. So um, maybe not a difference, maybe a continuation. Yeah, and I love that. I mean, that's what John Sr. says in his book, right? He says, what is Christian culture? Mm-hmm. It's essentially the mass. Right. No, that's what he said. That's what he said. Like yeah. it's essentially the mass. But I told you no hard questions. I said <laughs> Doctor Stout is much smarter. <laughs> so. But I think that is a really good segue, because if we're to take the mass out into the world, and it is supposed to encompass everything, that is going to include our eating and our drinking. Okay, and if if that is supposed to inform our behavior, then how does how does the way we eat and drink, how is that influenced? By this virtue of religion, by uh, and the height of religion, the most you know the most sacred thing in the world, the mass. How does that change the ordinary things of eating and drinking? When Paul talks about the Last Supper in First Corinthians, you know he he says that Jesus describes it this way: Whenever you eat or drink of these things, do it in memory of me. And I think, in a broad sense, our life should be sacramental. I think there's nothing more damaging to the Christian life than secularism. Mm. And that, in a sense, goes back to the virtue of religion. What does God want? He doesn't want a few minutes. He doesn't want part of your life. He wants your whole life to be given back to him. And so that has to be, you know, even the little details, our eating and our drinking. Are you eating in honor of the Lord, in memory of the Lord? Are your meals at home sacramental in a lowercase s sense? Right, that you are entering into communion with God and others in this meal. And that includes also our drinking. And I think that can be more challenging uh, because a lot of times people in this kind of secular mentality say, you know, I worship God on Sunday, but Friday night and, and Saturday, that's the time for drinking. That's something different. You know, God's not there in that moment. And, and that's a huge problem. So can you talk a little bit about Let's just talk about alcohol for a second, okay? Alcohol can be exhilarating. Um, God made it that way on purpose. In fact, there are certain psalms where, uh, you know, uh, the psalmist is writing and the, taking the, the person of God saying, you have eaten and you have eaten and drinking, but you have not been exhilarated. You know, like you've been trying, but you haven't even gotten the real deal out of what it is. What is it about and how does that exhilaration fit into the idea of virtue? Well, I would say when it comes to alcohol fitting into virtue, 
right? You know, the, the, the virtue that comes to mind most is moderation, but here we're thinking about religion, and that leads us into festivity. Uh, because think about a, a wedding feast or a great celebration, and you're going to say, well, instead of wine, we're just going to gr- drink grape juice. Isn't that the difference? That's, right? Yeah. You're not experiencing that exhilaration. The Psalms also Which say that. Which would be that, totally lame. Yeah. <laughs> that God has given wine to gladden the you, heart of man. You'd leave it like, you know? how was the wedding? It was fine. Yeah. You know? like, my groomsmen brought grape juice. Right? Yeah. Right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I gave them a toaster. They gave me grape juice. Right. <laughs> in Jesus, in inaugurating the great wedding feast of the Lamb, uses wine. Yeah. And not only wine. Like, mm-hmm. the best wine. Yeah. And a whole bunch of it. And so alcohol is a symbol of the joy of the eternal wedding feast. Mm-hmm. That's what it's meant to be. We know it can be very dark, right? And it can be a sign of something else. But, but ideally, what is it meant to be? Yeah. Right? Something that does glorify God, something that does elevate and lift our hearts in praise, and that does draw us closer together in communion rather than breaking us apart, which is what happens when it's abused. Right. Can true festivity be separated from religion? No. <laughs> you know, Joseph Good Pieper answer. Oh. Uh, deals with that in his book, In Tune with the World. Yeah. Right? He says that without God, you will only have a sham festivity because there's nothing worth celebrating like God, right? I mean, everything else obviously falls short. So the thing that really is able to be celebrated is God, creation, and our eternal salvation. One thing I love that Peeper says that I'd like your comments on. The Peepster? The Peepster. <laughs> yeah, we call him the Peepster around here. <laughs> uh, when he's talking about holidays, and, you know, uh, we have uh, Labor Day. I think, uh, I think he would probably hate Labor Day. Sham festivity. Just totally I mean, sham. Yeah. When he talks about if uh, religion has been removed from a holiday, it becomes a demented form of work. Mm. Can you offer any, either of you offering comments on that? Well, I was, I, what I was thinking is less along the lines of like a specific holiday, like a Labor Day, becoming a demented form of work, and more like perhaps um, a, a deception, right, by the evil one, right, of a sham festivity, basically luring us into something that isn't true festivity. Is there something more true, good, and beautiful that we could celebrate, right, on on such a holiday? Not saying Labor Day is a bad thing in particular, sure. right, in society, yet. Um, is, I take the day off too. I mean, exactly. I, yeah. <laughs> I'm not uh, mad about it. But is, is there a higher opportunity on that day, yeah. right? As you said, true festivity. How, how could it be turned towards more of a true festivity? Yeah, and festivity is not recreation. It's not just having the day off. It's actually using, eating, drinking, music, dancing, fellowship as a means of praising God. Mm-hmm. And that makes no sense to secular people. You know, No, I praise God in church. That's like the definition of secularism in a way, not simply not going to church, but keeping church away from everything else. Yeah. And so if, if we want to look at whether or not our life is religious, we could say, do we engage in real festivity? You know, do the details of our life themselves give glory to God? If I could give an, a, an example, perhaps, like just thinking about the percentage of people that you see in the pews on mass on Thanksgiving, Right. There's a good example of a secular holiday that was kind of instituted for a semi-religious, at a semi-religious aim, if you will. Um, you probably know more on the history of it. However, like, what if everyone started Thanksgiving Day at Mass? 
what if that holiday flowed out of the experience of returning to God first, right? And yet you don't see that. And, and maybe that's a good like action item, an example of how you might take a, a Thanksgiving secular holiday and make it a more true festivity, perhaps. Because what is our Thanksgiving? Eucharist, the Eucharist, the Eucharist. right? The Eucharist is, is the way fitting, to give thanks it? to right. God. Yeah. yeah. So what does that look like, though, Dr.? From a pragmatic standpoint, right? How does it, how do you in the ordinary life have true festivity? Like, we all have a bunch of kids running around. Like, we're trying to you know just make it, so to speak, you know, and, and pass on the faith. Like, what does that look like for a busy father, a busy husband? I think essentially it means that on these holy days that just kind of pass us by. You think of like the Immaculate Conception. You know, we say, "Well, I made it to Mass today." And, right, uh-huh. and, and what else? You know, are, are we actually getting together with other people to engage in actions that are joyful, that are celebratory, um, and that show that this day is more important than all the other days, right? If, if the Immaculate Exception goes by and we haven't lived it differently and we haven't said that that day was awesome, that we really made the most of that day together, so that means that we're having a lot of food, drink. And, and I think as Americans, we really struggle with what comes next. In medieval Europe, they would dance. Well, that doesn't mean, you know, turn on, you know, hip hop music or whatever. We've kind of lost some of the traditional means of glorifying God through music and dancing and all these kinds of things. But we do need to recover that. We, we just are very thin, culturally speaking. But it, when it comes to alcohol, to, to circle back to that, you know, it always was the toast, right? And if this day is going to be a, a day of thanksgiving and praise to God, our eating and drinking should be marked by the toast to really honor our Lord and our Lady, um, to gather us together, to raise the glass as we did at the start of this show, to praise Him, right? You know, and raising that glass should be an act of praise. So obviously, if you don't have food and drink, you're not really, it's not, a, it's, there's no festivity Really, and not at least not in the fullest sense. There's certainly no feast, right? But what comes first, okay? Because the chicken or the egg, right? It seems like there <laughs> before you eat, there should be a recognition of the like on a feast day. There's a reality that should be like there should be an internal disposition, right? That flows like, and that's why we feast. You know, sometimes. And I'll just tell you this: I fall into this category of mixing things up and thinking, "Oh, hey, it's a feast day. Let's eat." Mm. And I'm thinking, and actually, the food becomes what I'm celebrating. Mm-hmm. What's the proper order here? Well, it's meant to be more Eucharistic. So, if if we look back into even ancient history, you know, or we we look into the the Bible in the Old Testament. The, the festive days would flow from sacrifice. So everyone would come together and they would offer gifts to God. And that would be animals, grain. There are libations as well, you know, pouring wine and, and beer out um, as a sacrifice. So everyone is gathered together, first of all, to give praise to God. But then the sacrifice, a portion of it was, you know, burnt and, and destroyed. But the rest actually became the basis of a kind of covenant meal. You would come together on, on these great feast days to offer sacrifice, to renew the covenant, not only with God, but with one another. And then the meal symbolized the unity, both with God and 
with each other. And it flowed directly mm. out of that sacrifice. So you'd pour some of the wine out in sacrifice, and even the Jews did a daily libation of wine and beer. Really? Uh, yes. Oh, no kidding. And then the rest would, Sounds like would alcohol be consumed. Abuse. <laughs> it's what you but do it, with it's the expired beer. It's for a higher beer. purpose. Right. <laughs> right? <It's> for, <laughs> the old beer in your God fridge. God that's needs what you do. his portion. <laughs> yeah. you know? He does. But it doesn't he seem deserves like, it. It doesn't seem like there can be a feast without the fast, without the sacrifice. There has to be a, a true relationship there of feasting and fasting. So in my book, The Beer Option. Which uh, is a great title. Yes. Yeah. Brewing a Catholic Culture Yesterday and Today. Oh. That's the subtitle. It just, it's great. It's just so great. <laughs> yeah. But I say that drinking should be marked by three things. Feasting, fasting, and friendship. Mm. But so feasting you know, gives us the, the reason to drink. Are we drinking for the right purposes or not? But then it's balanced by fasting because we can't just feast all the time because then we're going to fall into excess. And so the church gives us these penitential seasons. And traditionally, during wine and Advent, we would not drink alcohol. Well, it's wine, especially in the Mediterranean world. They during give Lent, up wine. Lent and Advent. Lent and I like Advent. renaming yeah. Lent wine, though. Yeah. That's a good, yeah. And then... Um, in friendship, right? So that you, know, you think of the alcoholic as kind of going off uh, into his own world and kind of getting lost there. Yeah. Um, and so we really need to be drinking in a way that builds us up together as men and is really supporting that community, right? That flows from the sacrifice. So let me ask you this. <laughs> we're just shotgun. I mean, we're just shotgun. This boom, is boom, great. Question, yeah. question, question, question. I have a lot of questions. <laughs> <laughs> is festivity possible for the hermit? You know, I, there, there's a line that I actually quote in the beer option where um, a, a father monk says to one of his disciples, who's a hermit, mm-hmm. he says, I command you in holy obedience to drink one glass of wine every Sunday in feast day to celebrate. And of course, he, he is in communion with the angels and saints. So I, I'm going to say yes. Okay. Uh, that the hermit um, is going to have a higher... Uh, ability to enter into the feast than us, even though, of course, you know, we need the, the singing and the dancing and the, and the food and the drink. But the hermit can really rejoice on those days even more fully than we can because of the penance. But th- there should even for the monk be something to celebrate on those days, you know, some means. And that's why, you know, that in that one example, so I want you to have a drink on those days. Okay. I think, though, it, it, we'd, we'd be remiss if we did not talk a little bit more about uh, moderation, the virtue of moderation. Because we're talking about you know uh, the virtue of religion, but moderation plays, like you said, a key role in when we're, we're eating and drinking, and really all of our appetites, right? In moderation, uh, can you maybe talk a little bit about how moderation looks different for for different people? Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, I think that beer is a great test case for the virtue of religion. <laughs> if the virtue of religion is ordering everything we do to God's glory, well, then we need to start thinking about these different areas of our life. Does that give God glory or not? And what did Jesus say? If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. So there may be occasions in which drinking moderately means not drinking at all, right? You know, we have to really reflect, is this an area where I'm not able to glorify God and would abstaining give him more glory? Um, But I also think there should be certain ground rules. And I kind of lay out some suggested ones in the book, you know, that you should know your limit, okay? You know, for me, no more than three drinks at once, you know, unless it's really kind of spread out like over a longer period of time. But I'm a smaller guy, you know. 
that I'm only drinking with other people, not drinking just by myself, that, you know, I'm eating food, um, that it's not too regular. I'm not like drinking every single day. Um, so maybe reserving it for, you know, like more special occasions with other guys and things like that. So it is true that we do have to discern it. So it's not just moderation, right? Moderation is the virtue that, that finds the right balance. Not too little, not too much. Thomas Aquinas did say it was possible to drink too little. He said, you know, if, if drinking is something that promotes health and, and we're not drinking, well, he said, well, then that would actually be deficient, right? Um, but we need prudence. It's not just moderation. Prudence as well. Prudence is the ability to know what the right thing to do is. And when it comes to drinking, you have to know that in advance, Right? It's not so something you, you figure be, out on the spot because was, we know how that goes. Yeah, I was about to say, so you have to be imprudent in order right, to know Because I feel prudence. like I can have another one, you know, all, all <laughs> the time. <laughs> so is it like one of those, like, I, like, how, like how, do you, how do you know that? How do you have that prudence without being imprudent? Like, how do, how do you know where your limit is without actually getting to that limit? So when Aquinas talks about the sin of drunkenness, he, he talks about, you know, the first time somebody gets drunk, it may simply be accidental. They really did not know how much they could drink. Right. And so he kind of excuses that, but only the first time. Right? Yeah. But I think it's also in the right context. You know, somebody should be there like, hey, buddy, uh, you know, I think you're good. You know, like, importance of good friends. You're done. Mm-hmm. Right. So, you, yeah, you really need to, to be in that right context. Sure. And once you are, are, you know, sensing that, you know, I'm kind of starting to feel a little funny. You know, you know, OK, that's enough. I uh, met, I was talking to this Benedictine monk one time, and he was explaining that more virtue is better than less virtue. So let's drink so that we can exercise temperance. <laughs> <laughs> that is how you build the virtue, right? It's by doing, <laughs> you know? <laughs> because more virtue is better. So, like, let's have a drink, you know? And I said, I cannot find any faults in your logic. <laughs> we don't want to fall into deficiency, right? That's we'll just right. put that exactly. out there, yeah. But... I want to get back to the like the cultural aspect because there is something about, especially beer historically, that it's when you see beer on the scene, when beer makes it onto the scene, that's when you finally start to have a culture. Can you give any background, like any historical background for culture equals beer? Culture is one of my favorite words, right? And where does it come from? And in Latin, the word colore means to cultivate. And the participle is cultus. Okay. And so cultivate, right? We cultivate the earth, um, but we also, and St. Augustine talks about this, cultivate God when we worship him. It's the same exact word in Latin. Really? To make something and to worship. Um, so even like Peter Marin, who worked with Dorothy Day, spoke about cult, culture, cultivation. Worship, and then the cultivation of our soul and education, and then the making of things. And throughout history, all of this went together, right? What is a culture? It's, it's a group of people coming together in a particular place, supporting themselves, cultivating things. But why? For the cultus, for the worship of God. And you hmm. see this in all the primitive cultures. Actually, some of the oldest sites um, in the Middle East that we've discovered where people gathered were cultic sites. And what did they find there? Beer. Beer. Yep. <laughs> I knew it. <laughs> like that, that the Golbe Teke site, which I think is like 9,000 years old, right? And so they said it was a gathering place for festivity. And so um, they found the remains of, you know, these big brewing pits there. Huh. Uh, but it is true that 
beer is bound up with the very beginnings of civilization because people gathered together to domesticate and, and farm grains. Why? To make beer. People say bread? No, no, no. Beer, right? <laughs> beer before bread. I mean, it's just, There's a t-shirt. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, beer is just liquid bread. Yeah. That's all it is. Yeah, I w- with the help of, of some yeast. Yeah. You know, you, know, I mean, you got yeast and bread. No, I mean, that's true. Yeah, that's true. It's, all, but, it's the same ingredients. The yeast works at it a little it's bit It's just longer, there's no right? flour in beer, <laughs> which right. is fine. We don't need flour. <laughs> now, the way that they brewed in the ancient world was different. So in ancient Mesopotamia, they would actually let the barley, sometimes it was, it was actually later on made into barley loaves, and they just put them into this big vat, and, and the barley would just sit there and turn into a big mush. They didn't know anything about yeast, so they would put honey and fruit in there because there's yeast mm-hmm. in, in both of those sources, and it would just ferment. And then they would gather together and drink it out of straws. That's how they drank beer. And that's All why right. you don't I mean. find beer in the Bible, the word beer, even though it's there. It's, in Hebrew, it's the word shikar. And when you look in the, the ancient Mesopotamian language, it's sikaru. It's a related word. And, and in the Bible, it's translated into English as strong drink. But they didn't have whiskey then. They did not yeah. have distilled beverages. Uh-huh. So when you see strong drink in the Bible, it means beer. Huh. And that was part of Israelite worship, making libations of wine and libations of shikar, beer. I, I do know that the old German purity laws... You know, they only allowed for a, f- a few ingredients. It was like water, barley, and hops. It's because they didn't know about yeast. But they did, they did think that you put these together and you stir it with this magic stick. Yeah. And when you stir it, then it turns into beer. Well, it's like this stick has bacteria and yeast all over it. And so they were introducing yeast into the process. They just didn't know it. So later on, when they discovered it, they actually went back and amended the right. laws in Germany <laughs> to allow for a fourth ingredient. But, you know, the purity laws were actually to stop other grains from being used for beer instead of bread. Because the Germans love beer so much, they just wanted to take all their grains and turn them into beer. <laughs> and so Bavaria made that law to say, How no, dare no, no, you no, make no, bread. You know? <laughs> That's right. Just just take the, the barley and just use that for the beer. You can just picture the men going like, what, beer's not good enough for you? Huh? <laughs> But, you know, hops didn't come along till later. So the monks invented beer as we know it. You look okay. at the brewing processes and brewing equipment. It was all perfected at the monastery. But hops wasn't introduced until, you know, the late 700s. It was by monks in northern France under the Franks. And I actually led a pilgrimage to one of the oldest monasteries uh, to have used hops. Really? And it was funny. It's called St. Vendry in Normandy. And... The monk who was giving us the tour of the monastery said, I'm going to take you into the cloister, but I want you all to be really quiet. I was like, okay, so we, we go into the cloister. He gets a flashlight out, and he's showing us the, the sculpture, the top of the cloister, and he says, all right, look at this plant here that they carved here in the Middle Ages. Does anybody know what that is? We're all just kind of looking at it. And all of a sudden, it hit me. I'm like, that's hops. He's like, shh. I'm like, oh, sorry. <laughs> there we were, like in the cloister. He's like, I'm going to take you to the cloister as long as you're quiet, but... But they were even carving the hops, you know, around the inside of the, of the cloister. And really? They went back to brewing beer. So we were able to go there and, and, and sample their beer. Uh, but even the use of hops was introduced by the monks because it gave stability and just that, that kind of bitterness that balances out the maltiness. But it, it didn't become predominant until the 1500s. So those purity laws are actually later. Okay. And even like King Henry VIII called hops a wicked weed because it was ruining English ale. 
Because they used to put, you know, other additives in there. When you think of some of the great Belgian beers, they would put fruit and, and they would have different mixtures of spices that they would put into beer. But hops got rid of all of that. Okay, so let's talk about, you know, so, so bread, you know, it's good nourishment, it's good food. Uh, but let's talk about like super substantial bread. Let's talk about, because that's like actually way more fun to talk about. Right. Um, even in our father. Talk, the, like, yeah. So beer is the test case of religion, right? If you can order that to God, you can order anything to God. But what, what ultimately brings us into the right ordering to God? It's not drinking, it's eating, right? Eating the super substantial bread. And it's true that in the Our Father, the, the literal translation is not give us this day our daily bread. It's give us this day our super substantial bread. And it's a unique word in Greek, and so Jerome didn't know how to translate it. So in the two Gospels, one he put super substantialis, but in the other he put quotidianus, you know, daily. Uh, and so he kind of hedged his bets on how to translate it. But, <laughs> but both are correct. What is the daily bread that we need? We need a food that goes beyond anything else on this earth. We are not animals, right? We are spiritual beings who, of course, have animal bodies, but... Um, we need to feed our souls. Beer's not good enough for that. Right? We need the bread of heaven. Okay, so, um, okay. Uh, I didn't realize you were stopping there because uh, you're, you're doing yeah. good. Okay, so. Uh, well, I, I mean, I could keep going, but. Yeah. No, no, okay, so if food, like, uh, if uh, earthly food provides a certain end, nourishment to our bodies, what should we look at and expect for this super substantial bread to be the end of for our soul. So we were talking the other day at the conference that about the beautiful passage in, in John 14, without me, you can do nothing. But what can we do with Jesus? Anything that he wants us to do. And so if we are nourished by the body of Jesus, we are becoming Jesus, right? Why do we eat the Eucharist? To become him and, and to live his life in the world. And so we simply can't do that on our own. Um, and if we are really going to spread the kingdom of God, if we are really going to order not only our own lives, right, because ultimately we can look at the virtue of religion as ordering all of society, you know, obviously our families, all of this should be ordered to God's glory. But if we're going to do that, we need to be fed by God and given his own power and strength to do it. I thought it was so beautiful the way uh, Derek put it this morning, just talking about, you know, the fall of man, right? But you can just picture God saying, you know, if that's what you want, I'll give it to you. You know, man took the fruit from the, the tree of knowledge of good and evil and fell. And so Christ became our food, hanging himself upon a tree so that we might become, you know, it's like, if that's what you want, he will humble himself so much. If that's what you want, I'll become that for you. His, his humility, it, it's endless, right? He will go to the ends of the earth as low as you got. He will go there if that's what it takes. You know, it was just, I just thought that was just such a beautiful, beautiful analogy. Let me ask you kind of a, an interesting hypothetical question. Oh, great. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think would happen if we could like magically snap our fingers and alcohol just disappeared? What would be the consequence on our culture? No Eucharist for one. 
No Eucharist without, well, you're right, no wine. All right. Okay, so aside it would, from it that. Would cut right at the heart. Yeah, that would be terrible. Of Catholic culture, yeah. What else would happen? Well, I, I think that there are good things you might see. Right? Sure. I mean, we can't sweep under the rug. Sobriety. You know, being, that yeah, being one alcohol does lead to death sure. for a lot of people, and it leads to broken families, and it destroys people's lives. I mean, anything could do that. Right? I mean, we can misuse anything, but we wouldn't see some of the good things. So we said the Eucharist is obviously the most important thing, but would our fraternity be diminished? Would our festivity be diminished? I think we could say yes you know giving up alcohol i, I know this from experience i mean it, it can create a lot of loneliness right mm-hmm. so so just to for clarity you gave up alcohol recently i just I, I just learned this yes i mean i i have a number of times okay so even as i was writing the beer option i was on a year-long beer fast maybe i needed that to be able to get it done i don't know <laughs> <laughs> it's like man but, all this writing is making me thirsty <laughs> <laughs> but i did feel the, the call and prayer um, of the Lord asking me to, to make beer and drinking more broadly into a sacrifice for him. And, and so I have done that, and I think it's opened up a lot of grace. I speak and write just as much about beer as I did before. I'm still very interested by the topic, and I think it is a great way to evangelize men. You know, I, I do talks you know, for different men's group, and they're, and they're like, I'm going to bring my son, who's a fallen away Catholic, or, or my neighbor, because they, they're actually interested in beer. Uh-huh. So let's talk about beer, and I think it, it can be a great way uh, to draw people into the history of Catholic culture, into fraternity, and talking about even the things of God. So less fraternity. Without alcohol. Without alcohol. Yeah, I, there is something about it. Do you think we would, as a like a culture, we would slowly lose a sense of um, festivity? Like, do you think? Well, I think it would we already be... have, right? Oh well, yeah. So I would say, in our attempts to recover, it, I think alcohol has a place, you know, in moderation to help us to recover festivity. What what I would actually say, without alcohol right now, I think would only accelerate our turn to drugs. And I have a whole chapter in the beer option oh. uh, on beer versus marijuana. And what's the difference between beer tastes better, the moderate <laughs> use of alcohol and the use of drugs? Well, let's go back: feasting, fasting, friendship. Right? You know, with drugs, is this something that glorifies God? No. no. Right? Is this something that draws us into the ascetical life? You know, like we see with the liturgical seasons and the giving up of alcohol. No. Is it something that draws us into greater friendship? No. No. Right? And so I think that that would be one problem, is that alcohol can be directed towards God. We know that. Jesus used it at the Last Supper. Right? So it has, as it's tell us, the glorification of God. Drugs do not. Right. And I think drugs are intrinsically destructive. Recreationally. Recreationally. Right? Yeah, yeah. Well, therapeutically, that's a whole nother story, and right, yeah. we could look at many damaging effects there as well, and there probably needs to be some kind of correction, even sure. therapeutically. But yes, the re- recreational use of drugs is something that undoes our spiritual nature and pulls us away from God and other people. And alcohol can do that as well if it is abused. Because there has to be that sobriety. You can't actually have festivity without sobriety. Right. Right. Otherwise, we, we, we cease to... 
that human element that separates us, right? This rational intellectual component of us, we just kind of throw it away and we just turn into an animal and you know, that's an animals can't feast. That's or, the or thing. worse than animals, of course. Right? Yeah, yeah. 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 You're right. So Deacon, let me ask you this. Uh, we're in the year of the Eucharistic revival or actually what in multiple years of the Eucharistic revival, about two thirds of the way, two thirds of the right. way. Yeah. <laughs> but it's not ending in th- year three, you know, right. Yeah. Right. So like, what have you experienced throughout this process in your parish and in your community on like, uh, the love of the Eucharist and how that has affected your parish, your community. Uh, I just, it's hard for me to believe this, you know, the stats whenever they talk about how Catholics don't, you know, there's X percentage of Catholics that don't believe that the mm-hmm. Eucharist is Jesus. Yeah, because I wouldn't go. Like, I I, I don't right. know. Yeah, what does a Flan, uh, uh, Flannery O'Connor say? Like, it, it, if, this, if the Eucharist is just a symbol, the hell with it. Hell with it, right. Yeah. yeah. Totally. But like, so what, what have you seen in, in, in your in your area? Uh, it's, it's interesting. I think it's, so on one hand, I think some of the survey results might not be entirely true. I think it might be who they're asking. Yeah, I, right? I, I agree. With so you, I, yeah. I think there's an aspect of that. I do think there, for everyone that does believe though, there's still an opportunity for a deepening of that de- belief. And that's what I believe that I'm seeing. Um, one of the interesting things about this phase, if you will, of the Eucharistic revival that the bishops have asked of us is um, to, to offer like, nights of adoration and praise and things like other opportunities to deepen our understanding and our appreciation of the Eucharist. So where I see that happening, for example, in our parish, um, we're on three years now of a Sunday night Vespers and Holy Hour and adoration as a parish. So we pray Vespers together and seeing the growth in that, right? Seeing that, seeing more people, you know, every quarter coming and spending their Sunday evening, ending the weekend also with a moment of adoration and thanks and praying Vespers together, right? Like little things like that, I think are, are bringing back elements of a Catholic culture, right? That continue to aim at that virtue of religion and help us to, to deepen it in our lives. So I, I, there's, it's interesting, right? Cause these topics tie together, the Eucharist, the Thanksgiving, the virtue of religion, um, and this, this journey that our bishops have invited us on to continue to deepen our understanding of that. And I think that, you know, Eating and drinking just normal food needs to be part of the Eucharistic revival. In, in the early church, there was the agape meal, mm. which accompanied the Eucharist. And there's some debate, but even in 1 Corinthians, we might see an agape meal um, that actually housed the Eucharist within it. But Christians gathered together not only to celebrate the Eucharist, but to also celebrate their own communion with one another by having an ordinary meal. You see that in... Uh, Pliny the Younger's letter to the Emperor Trajan. He says that Christians got together uh, before dawn to sing hymns to Christ as a God, and then they gathered in their homes later in the day for an ordinary meal. And I think that's the part we're missing, right? Is that we're not actually using eating and drinking in a way that draws us more deeply into communion as a church. We, We come together, we worship God, and then we get out of there as fast as we can. So this is where I think we can start tying some of these things together, right? All of our lives need to be ordered towards God. Um, That includes our eating and drinking, most especially the Eucharist. But these things are not unrelated at all. So what is the importance of the dinner table at the home and the relationship to the Mass? You could, in a sense, you could say that the the father, and in in an extension where there isn't a father, the mother is, is the priest at that table. Right. And there, there's to my earlier answer about the mass, right? Like there is a sacramentality of our entire life. And that dinner table is the altar of the home. 
in a sense, one of the altars of the home. And it's the opportunity for the family to gather to offer that meal also and their time together back in Thanksgiving. Now, statistically, like most families today, right, speaking of losing that culture, instead of sitting down for a dinner together, they're taking their kids to soccer and to basketball and to golf and to whatever happens to be that night, right? We've been intentional in our own home, by the grace of God, most nights of the week to say it is a priority for us to sit down and eat dinner together. Even if it's only time to run through a fast food drive through and bring it back and sit down together, right? Like there is an importance of gathering around that table and sharing that meal together, praying together, offering that to God. And there's an opportunity, you know, to, to this conversation that we've been having on, on special days, on feast days, to do something more special about that meal, right? And to even weave older other traditions into that moment. Um, and a lot of the things we're trying to talk about now in the seasonal exercises in Exodus are bringing back some of those traditions around some of those days that, you know, you could talk about at that dinner table and then extend, you know, John the Baptist in the summer, go outside and have a bonfire, right? Invite your neighbors over, like make that culture part of what you start at the dinner table as a family, what you extend into your, into your neighborhood um, and, and reignite that culture ultimately. And maybe that ties back to this Eucharistic revival idea. I think it does. Mm -hmm. So, I'm really asking this question. This is just an, uh, like an idea that's occurring to me now. So maybe there isn't. A, maybe there's nothing here. But is there what? And if there is, what kind of justice is there at the table? Like, do the family members, if justice is rendering to someone what is due to them, is the family? Do we have as members owe each other a meal together? Like, is there like a debt that's like, no, I actually, I as a member of this family, owe you this, my participation in this meal? At least the, the parent owes that to the child, I would, I would propose, right? <clears throat> that, that as in the responsibility that we have in our priesthood, right, in our role of authority in the home, we owe that, you know, extending that culture to our child. And I think there, yeah. there is also another virtue that's a part of justice, and that's piety, and that is honoring your nation and honoring your parents. And so I, I do think that respecting that time on both sides, right? That the parents are, are carving that out for the family, but then the children also respecting it and entering, entering into it and having that be a time of real communion. That is, you're not just eating together, but that you are talking and praying together, surrounding the meal. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think we do owe it to one another. But I think, okay, so, but this is, Again, this has been far removed from our culture, right? You know, we're the weird people who have dinner together, right? You know, who sit down at the dinner table and eat eat together, right? So for those who say like, no, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna start incorporating this into my family. I'm gonna make this intentional. I'm gonna, I want this for my family. Uh, it can be a little intimidating as as a man, as a father who like who hasn't done it before. It could be awkward. It could feel a little awkward to like, okay, let's start off in prayer. Like, hopefully that's what you're doing. You, you start off your meal in prayer. Um, but what 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 advice would you give to the men who say, like, okay, I'm going to start, I'm going to make this a, an intentional thing to do? Like, what, like how what, do you start? Like, how do they start? I wasn't thinking as much of how you start as much as um, just a kind of a story out of my own experience of it's, it's good even though it's hard. And that is, you know, there are moments as we've raised our children, and our children, our oldest are now getting into their older teen years. Um, 
and and there were moments where it was like gosh like why are we doing it this way right like i think any one of us would have said it at one point or another and yet now as they're getting a little older there are moments where they thank us and they express like an appreciation that we've given them that gift um so i was i was where my mind was going at it was more just like it it is coming back around to yield a fruit that is showing me like the good of having made that sacrifice even in the moments when it seemed like it was tough or difficult or why are we doing this sacrifice right the making mm-hmm. of something to be holy and I, I think that's really what it has to be that that you are making a sacrifice of that time that requires saying no to other things that's where we need the leadership of the father the father has to put his foot down to say that we are guarding and protecting this time and when you're actually there i think part of it you know needs to be the coordination of okay who's making the meal when, how are we gathering together? You do be, you know, want to begin with prayer. You bless the food. That's part of the virtue of religion. You're ordering the, the food and the meal to God and then actually engaging in conversation so that the Father can be the kind of moderator uh, of the conversation. And it takes and it honors both roles too, right? And, and this can flow, but like, for example, like my wife loves hosting, loves hospitality, loves cooking for the family. Like that is an expression of her love, Right. And so for her to make the meal is the expression. But like, if I don't play my role as the father and say, boys, we're coming to the table now, right? Like I'm not playing my role in that relationship that makes it work, right? So in in a sense, that's part of in our marriage, how we're helping each other out and helping each other get to heaven and bring the best of both of our gifts. And St. Benedict said that even all the utensils of the monastery were sacred. So there is a way in, in which we need to help our kids to see that any help that they're doing to make the meal, to set the table, to do the dishes, that this is part of the domestic church, right? Even that, the that manners th- at the table. Absolutely. Yeah. So this is a way not only of, of showing love to one another, but of glorifying God, like the, at the monastery. So we, we have uh, only a little bit of time left. but o- there- Only three more hours. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that's like two questions. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, but there's just like a meal is literally life-giving. Like if you don't do it, you'll die. Right. Um, why is it in your, like both of your answers here, why did God, Jesus come to us in a meal? Like what's the, like this guy, there's something there, right? I just, I just know it. I just need you to tell me what it is. So I, I think that the fact that we are beings that need to eat and drink, it shows us that we have to be grounded beings who are dependent for our nourishment, not only on the earth, but on one another. And so there's something beautiful here. God himself is a communion of persons. And so unlike animals who, who sometimes do just kind of forage and eat on their own, we as human beings eat meals together. That's an essential aspect of who we are. And obviously, I think if Jesus is giving himself to us in the context of a meal, I think you're right to say there's something there mm-hmm. that he is not only giving us this communion in the church, but he's giving us the communion that he is in God um, in the communion that we have in the church with one another. And he's nourishing us, not just in our bodies, but in our souls, mm. right? He's saying, this is the food that you really need. Super substantial. And I think to me, it's also like the fact that it's, it's a meal, but it's not, a, it's not a full meal. It's in the form of a piece of bread. So I think he's also teaching us that there's an element in which the God of the universe 
comes to us in deep, deep humility, right? And, and through that, there's something for us to learn about what he expects of us and the way that we live and treat each other as well. Dr. Jared Stout, you have a book, like we mentioned, about the beer option, but you also have another book on the Eucharist. Can you give the title of that and where they could pick that up? Yes. Uh, so from, from the communion of that meal, right, everything else becomes rightly ordered and transformed. So the name of the book is How the Eucharist Can Save Civilization. That is it. It's a pretty big title. Right? I mean, th- this is everything that we need because with Jesus, we can do anything. Right? And so we begin to reorder our lives, reorder our families, order our work, reorder community in our parish. And all of this begins to build up. And over time, you know, it may take centuries. We may not see it. But the Eucharist will save civilization because if the Eucharist can't, I mean, nothing can. Nothing will. Right? And we right. know that God can do that. And what's beautiful about the Eucharist, it's not just God, you know, kind of waving his hand to say, there it is, civilization is fixed. By coming into us, he's saying, I want you to do it. You are going to save civilization, but I will do it with you. I'm going to come inside of you and change you so that you can be my presence in the world. You can be my tabernacle in the world and sanctify it. Now go forth. Now, yeah. Yeah. now do you, uh, Deacon, there is a, uh, a great way in which to do that coming up here in a couple months, um, maybe like January 1st even. Well, any day, what honestly. A, what right. could that be on okay. January 1st? Yeah, so this year's Exodus 90, you know, for men looking to deepen um, their own freedom and their own relationship with our Lord and, and, and God, um, starts Exodus 90 for the year. But right now, right, like with, with our fall exercise, you know, the Advent exercise coming up, any moment of the year now, there's an opportunity for a man to become an Exodus man and join in that global fraternity. Uh, and jump into, you know, we, we parallel the life and, and the calendar of the church, and we will help you continue to grow deeper and closer to God in the life of the church whenever you decide to join us in the Exodus app. And Exodus helps us to do the things that we've been talking about in this show, right? To put God first, right? Exodus works because we do a holy hour every day. And then also getting things right with our eating and drinking mm-hmm. and ordering them to God. So we're going to be fasting. Mm. And we're going to be doing penance. And then at the end, at Easter, it's going to be time to celebrate. We are really going to be able to enter into festivity after these 90 days of purification and renewal. So you're going to actually enter into a little feasting now before January 1st, if you would like Now's to. the time to right? get yeah. in. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, gentlemen, it, is, it has been a pleasure to talk to you. I appreciate the opportunity to, to uh, talk with you guys this evening and to, to be able to be at the summit. Um, we are on the yeah. Lord's team. The winning side. So raise your glass. And cheers to Jesus. Cheers. To Jesus. cheers. cheers.